Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Sober Truth Podcast. Today on the show, Father Stavros from the Greek Orthodox Church has blessed us with his presence to bring a different expression of faith to our audience. So tune in and enjoy this podcast and make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. sitting here with Father Stavros of the Greek Orthodox Church. And let me just start with saying this, that um, three months ago, um, much of what I know um, did not include the Greek Orthodox Church. And I didn't know really anything about it. And um, what I've come to know now is it is a truly beautiful expression of the Christian faith. And um, I also realized that what I thought I knew was incorrect and I, I realized that um, it's actually a much closer version to um, my heart towards Jesus than um, I even realized prior to that. And I'm hoping that after we this conversation with Father Stavros, um, that some of you will realize the same thing. But either way, we're going to have a conversation today about faith, about the Orthodox Church, and really just the history of church in, in as a whole. And so, Father Stavros, welcome. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me. Yeah, actually, um, when I first asked you, I was like, and you said yes, I was like, he said yes. I didn't. <laughs> my wife was like, he did? I was like, yeah, now what do I do? <laughs> it's kind of like, this is this is crazy. This is awesome. But um, so tell me, you are the father of the Greek Orthodox Church here in Tampa. <clears throat> so us Protestants don't even know what that means. Are you a priest? Are you a father? Um, what is your role in this church? How does it work? It's interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, I kind of see myself as sort of a hybrid between a priest and a pastor. You would say on my business card that I'm a priest. And people call me father, um, but the pre the the priesthood that word to me um, reflects mostly like the sacramental life of the church. So like I'm a priest when I'm in front of the altar and I'm offering the liturgy or a sacrament or I'm visiting a hospital to give someone communion. The sacramental role and the priesthood kind of go the same for me. And then there's a, the pastor role, which is the um, administrator, the counselor, um, the teacher. Um, all those things are kind of wrapped up into the pastor role. Now, depending on who you ask, I mean, someone would say, well, you're a priest all the time, and those things are, are all the priests. But um, in, I guess like in the American context, like what's a pastor, what's a priest, I, I kind of um, have a foot in both worlds. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm priest and pastor. Priest and pastor. Mm -hmm. Now, there's the, the Greek Orthodox Church here in Tampa. That is your church, mm -hmm. right? So you're over that particular church. Correct. So in our ecclesiology, um, orthodoxy is about belonging. So I'm the priest of St. John Greek Orthodox Church in Tampa, but I'm under the metropolis of Atlanta, or you might say diocese of Atlanta. So the bishop of Atlanta, Metropolitan Alexios, is like my direct superior. And actually, in our, according to our ecclesiology, he's the head of this church, okay. and I'm just his representative, um, because when he comes you know, and, and visits our parish, like he is the, the head celebrant. He's the one who offers the homily. Um, and so really the bishops are the ones who um, are the, the overseers of the churches and the priests are their representatives. Okay. Let's jump, uh, go back to that word you just said, orthodoxy is what to you? It's about belonging. I mean, there's no such thing as like an independent orthodox church. So like if I took, you know, if I went and bought a piece of property and said, <clears throat> you know, we're going to build a church here, we're going to have icons, we're going to have the same services that we do at St. John's, you know, the first 
thing someone would say was like, well, who do you belong to? Who's your bishop? Mm-hmm. And if I said, you know, I don't have one, um, then it'd be like, well, then you're not orthodox because orthodoxy is about being connected to the bishops. And that's important, um, I guess, to understand from like a biblical perspective. You know, we know that Jesus had the 12 disciples and we know that after the resurrection, he commissioned them and said, go out into the whole world and spread the gospel to all the nations. And so we know that like Thomas, for instance, went to India and we know that uh, Peter went to Rome and James stayed in Jerusalem and Andrew went to Antioch and they started the churches there. <coughs> um, and then when you fast forward to Acts, uh, the, which is the history of the early church, in Acts 6, <coughs> you read that the people were complaining that the disciples were not taking time to, to take care of the daily distribution, mm-hmm. which was the distribution of, f- of food right. to widows and orphans. And the, the apostles retorted with, there's not enough time for us to preach the word of God and serve the tables. So they, they ordained the deacons. They, they came up with this role of the deacon <coughs> to assist them in preaching the word of God. So the first liturgical role that there is is the, the episcopos, the bishop, the overseer, the shepherd, which is what the apostles were. And the second role created was the diaconos, the the assistant to the shepherd. So let's put this in a, in a contemporary context. Um, let's say that we brought that we had an apostle that brought the the church to the Tampa Bay area, mm-hmm. and so the first church in the Orthodox church in the Tampa Bay area was St. Nicholas in Tarpon Springs, which is the cathedral. <coughs> and so let's say again in contemporary terms, we have an apostle serving there, and he's got some deacons helping him out. And then, the, and then over here on this side, you know, Tampa says, hey, we want a church. So the, the, the bishop, the apostle says, okay, let's establish a church there. Now I can't be in two places at once on Sunday. So, you know, I'm going to ordain, and this is where the priesthood was created. I'm going to ordain a priest that's going to serve over there in my stead. And then we're going to have another church in Clearwater, another one in St. Petersburg, and I will sort of supervise all of them. But on a day-to-day basis, the, the man on the, the boots on the ground is the priest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we still have that structure now. We have our bishop who's in Atlanta. And he's got 73 churches in the southeast, and the priests are the, are the foot soldiers. Um, and then when the bishop comes, he's like the overall overseer. So we're all connected to him, and then he is connected um, to our archbishop in New York, who's connected to our patriarch, who is in Istanbul, Turkey, which we still call Constantinople. Okay. Um, so it's all about, um, I mean, obviously it's all about Christ, but in the ecclesiology of the right. church, it's about you know being connected. And the bishops have what's called apostolic succession. So they, they can trace their lineage back to the apostles. So, you know, Peter and Andrew and James, and they ordained the next <coughs> group of bishops, you know, at the end of their lives. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and then they interdu- they ordained the next and the next and the next down here to the 21st century who are ordaining these bishops who ordained the priests. So wow. we're connected to a bishop who's connected to the apostles. Wow. Now, the word orthodox, the most Protestants hear that word, and they think that means um, correct thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, is it both what you just said, belonging and right thinking, or correct doctrine, uh, whatever? I mean, I would say the word orthodox means correct doctrine. Um, the, the term orthodox isn't really used until the 11th century when the Great Schism happened. So, like, in the beginning, Jesus founded one church, and they didn't call it Orthodox or Catholic or Protestant or anything. It was just like one church. Now, many times you'll hear the, the word, the term uh, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and that Catholic refers to universal. It doesn't refer to Roman Catholic. So, you know, one holy universal apostolic church. And for the first uh, 10 centuries of Christianity, there was there was one church. And there was some fracturing uh, or some arguing, I guess, between 
different areas of the world. So like the, the Church of Rome and the Church of Constantinople or Istanbul, there was a little bit of a rivalry there that went back to the, the fourth century. You know, basically the, the when Jesus walked the earth, the, the capital of the world was Rome. Mm-hmm. I mean, militarily, economically, politically. So it made sense that the church would be anchored there. It was the center of everything, commerce, art, everything. And so in the fourth century, when Rome was in decline, the emperor Constantine, the Roman emperor Constantine, decided we're going to move the sea of the world from Rome to what is present-day Istanbul, Turkey, which he named for himself, so they called it Constantinople. And that was in the year 325. And so in the year 325, the Roman Empire ended, the Byzantine Empire began, um, and the center of everything was Constantinople. And so there was a rivalry between these two Mm -hmm. churches, and then in 1054, the, the churches mutually excommunicated one another. They ceased talking and, and liturgical celebrations. And after that point, the Church of the East becomes known as the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Church of the West becomes known as the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, and now that, I want to stop you there because um, that's the first thing I learned about the Greek Orthodox Church or the Orthodox Church or whatever you want to say um, was that, which was mind-blowing because as a Protestant, we're taught that the great, um, the first separation of the great split of the church was Luther. Mm-hmm. And that's actually not true. And most Protestants, and I bet you right now, the majority of people watching this or listening to this don't know that. If they're actually going to think I'm a heretic, they're going to say, no, it was <laughs> Luther nailing the schism to the wall, and that was this big split. And that's wrong. The first split was in 1054, just like the father just mentioned, and it happened between Rome and Constantinople. And now you can't see it right. You know, I'm going to have Cole put up a, you know, like kind of this, the graphic. So Cole, you're going to have to come back to this. But you, there's a lot of, I'm sure you've seen him, the graphics that show the history of church and they show how the 1054 split between the Catholic um, and Orthodox church, but the Orthodox church remains straight. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the splits go from the Catholic to the Protestant with Luther, which is the one everybody's familiar with. And then the Protestant church splits 1,000 more times. Actually, I think it's more than that. About 38,000. 38,000 times. So as a Protestant, do we even realize that there's 38,000 denominations that split? That's a lot of denominations. Somebody's wrong out of that 38,000. And... The Orthodox Church is still the same since the first year. And I just think that that really was the first thing that I seen that was like, how come I've never seen this before? And, and it's like we only hear about the Luther split. And then most Protestants think that, you know, Catholics are way out there. And most Catholics probably think some Protestants are way out there. And it's probably true on both sides to some degree concerning, you know, some of the things that people think. But. When we look at the history of the church, it's like it's pretty it's pretty miraculous that, you know, after all these years, the Orthodox Church is pretty much still in that straight line. You know, if you go back to the historically in the in the fifth and sixth centuries, like how people were worshiping. I mean, we're still worshiping that way. I mean, and again, it's not about the trappings of the church that it's not about that. But there's a lot of um, Byzantine imperial um, vestiges that are still part of our our church. Um, so like historically, we can go back to there. Um, the Divine Liturgy, which is our our predominant Eucharistic service, the Divine Liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom, was written in the fourth century. 
I mean, we're still doing something that's 1,600 years old as our Eucharist service. Um, and at a time where we're, we're changing phones every couple months and we have no sense of old because, you know, once something is around for a few months, it's old. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this beautiful service that's 1,600 years old. And, and there are also pieces of our, our tradition that predate Christ. I mean, for instance, the setup of our church, um, there's a wall of separation between the altar and the Holy of Holies and, and the congregation. I mean, that's from the Jewish temple. Um, if you, if a person were to read Exodus 26 to 31, those chapters, and didn't know what they were reading, if, if that actually describes the Orthodox Church, I mean, we have the, the lampstand, the tabernacle, the, the incense. I mean, all those things that were were part of the the Jewish faith before Christ, thousand years before Christ. I mean, we have a lot of those things. Um, we we read from both the Old and New Testaments. I mean, the the in the evening services, which we which we call vespers service, um, we still have the the sundown is the beginning of the new day. So instead of, you know, midnight to midnight, we go sundown to sundown, the same way that the Jews are doing. So when the sun sets on an evening, we're already inaugurating the next day. And the service that we do in the evening, which is called Vespers, really is like the Old Testament. It's like Psalms and prophecy readings. And then when we have the Eucharist service in the morning, <clears throat> now we're in the New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, and it's sort of like the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Um, I heard a podcast recently where they were talking about um, the the, the uh, presenter was in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, which many people just sort of like dismiss. It's like, wow, this is like so complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that that you know the the complexity of you know did God care that the Ark of the Covenant was carried by acacia wood over overlaid with gold? And that's not really like the point of that. And and he said the point of of all these details is that God wanted us to be detailed in our worship. He didn't want us to like kind of make it up as we go. Um, we don't worship the details. I mean, the, the, the Israelites didn't worship the poles that were acacia wood overlaid with gold. They were worshiping God. But he had a very specific formula in how he wanted that done. And so I think in the Orthodox Church, we have a specific, very specific, <laughs> extremely detailed formula for like how we're worshiping or a tr- detailed tradition, not a formula, it's not like a magic thing, but a, a really detailed tradition for how we're worshiping. Now, we don't worship the tradition. We worship God. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ, but we use these things, you know, you know, very specifically to to focus us and also to unite us um, because you can go to a, a an Orthodox service in Tampa or New York or Greece or Australia, and it's going to be done the same way. Um, there's, there's like, and that's like one of the most comforting things. You know, when you go to a wedding or a funeral um, or, or a Eucharist service, you don't have to wonder, like, I wonder how they're going to do it here. Like, right. it's everywhere is the same. So you feel like at home and welcome anywhere. Um, one time I went down to Mexico, to Tijuana, to um, they have an Orthodox orphanage there and a, a ministry called Project Mexico where they build homes for uh, homeless people there. So I went there several, many years ago. And they did a, a Eucharist service all in Spanish. And, of course, I don't understand word for word what they were doing. But as I was watching the actions, I'm like, well, this is familiar. I, I know what he's going to do next. Even though it's not in my language, I feel comfortable here because it's very familiar. The ritual and the, the order of service was exactly the same. Right. Yeah, I, I don't, and it's interesting you mentioned just a few minutes ago about how today we have no sense of old because, you know, we're switching phones every two months, which I just switched my phone, so I feel convicted. Um, but... But, you know, um, so a lot of times in the, in some Protestant churches, it seems like, you know, we're trying to come up with the next new thing so people have fog 
Smoke coming up with the band that's playing, and it's the new hip, cool band. And it's like everybody trying to outdo the last cool thing because if people did the same old thing time and time again, people leave that church. And so it's a completely different mind switch where it's like, no, actually doing the same thing for a th- couple thousand years and, and then some is the beauty in, in coming towards Christ as opposed to my church better have a better new set music set from the worship band today or we're going to find the next cool place to go. You know, it's a, it, like you said, it, it's a totally different mindset. You got to go. First of all, um, there's no like sort of quick fix in orthodoxy. Like you really have to invest some time to learn. You know, if someone comes to a worship service in orthodoxy, the first thing they're going to think is like, this is really weird. <laughs> it's really different. Mm-hmm. You know, now some people may look around at the sights and sounds and say like, this is really beautiful, but I have no, I have no idea what's going on here, but it, it's nice. Um, so if, if a person really wants to, um, there's a lot of layers to un- unpeel there. And even, I've, even though I've been orthodox my whole life, I mean, I'm still finding new layers to unpeel of things. <coughs> um, like our worship services, um, they're meant to be work. So the word liturgy, which is our Eucharist service, comes from two Greek words, liton and ergon. And so liton, litos is the, the people, and ergasia is I work. So it's the work of the people. So people go there to work. They don't go to, like, be entertained. Um, you know, I went to a, a high school musical recently, and, and we sat in the, in the seats, and we just enjoyed the songs, and they weren't calling on us to do anything, just be entertained. But, like, the worship is not like that in our church. The worship actually calls us to work. Um, so there's a lot of interplay between the priest and the people. And so the priest will lead the people basically kind of, kind of like on a guided tour <laughs> of the world. And they're, so they're, at every divine liturgy that we have, we're praying for peace in the world, which obviously is really appropriate today. Um, sure. You know, so the priest gives a prompt. You know, we're all going to pray for peace in the world. And everyone sings, Lord, have mercy, to have peace in the world. You know, and, and when you think about all the things that we cover in the liturgy, you know, there are things I'm sort of embarrassed, like maybe I don't think about during the week. I mean, how often do I pray for our country, the president, for, for travelers, for the sick, for the suffering, for people who are in captivity? You know, all those things are covered in the divine liturgy. Um, there's there's a piece of the divine liturgy where we're praying for things that are personal to us. We're not praying for we pray at a certain part for the whole world, but there's a certain part where we only pray for us. So like we pray for forgiveness of our sins. Like people may go a week and not think they need forgiveness. You know, mm-hmm. life gets so busy you don't think about, gosh, what have I done wrong this week? Um, there's even a, a a petition in the service where we pray for a Christian end to our lives, peaceful without shame and suffering, and a good defense at the awesome judgment seat of Christ. And, you know, the Divine Liturgy is a very long, elaborate thing, and you can all boil it down to, like, that one petition. Because at the end, of, the, at the yeah. end of life, when you're looking down, you know, the gun barrel of death, you're not going to be thinking about peace in the world or anything else. You're just like, am I ready to go meet God? Um, and so we, we're having that, like, have you thought about your death this week? Like, I have, because it's in the liturgy. And I'm not in a fatalistic way, but in, a, like, a real way. Like, I know I'm, it's going to happen to me and you and everybody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how am I preparing for my defense at the awesome judgment seat of Christ? And I realize, like, oh, my gosh, I've had a terrible week. I better, I better do better this week because if right. this is my week, you know, I want him to come and, and, and find me doing something edifying with my life. Right. Now, let's jump into this topic because it is um, controversial and complicated and and, uh, many people have different beliefs on it. But what is the um, orthodox belief on salvation and how is a person saved? Great question. Um, You know, my understanding of salvation is it's it's like a, a continuous process. 
It's like uh, it's like going to marriage. You know, people say like, "Are you married?" I'm like, "I was married on a specific day. I am married right now, and I hopefully I will be married a long time from now." But you don't, you know, when you talk about marriage, you don't say like, "Well, once married, always married." I mean, it's like I was married <laughs> at a certain point. If you take that attitude, your your spouse is not going to stay with you. <laughs> um, but it's like you know, I'm. I'm I was married at a specific time. I'm working on it today, and hopefully I'm going to be doing it for a long time. And so salvation kind of works the same way. You know, I was, I'm saved. I was saved because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I was saved because I entered into the body of Christ through baptism. But I am working on my salvation today. I mean, what I'm doing matters. I mean, I was baptized many, many years ago, so I can't say God was baptized and now I'm good. Like, like, you know, sports team, like I've clinched the playoffs. I've, I've clinched yeah. heaven. It doesn't matter what I do right <laughs> now. Like it does matter what I'm doing because I, I am working on my salvation right now. And ultimately I will be saved by God's grace. Um, I can't show up at the door of heaven and say like, okay, I'm here. You know, I did good. He's the one that's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. If he thinks that I deserve that. Right. So, I mean, so I, I was, I have the potential to be saved. I was saved, but because of what he did in my entrance into that, I am being saved I'm in the process of being saved based on what I'm doing today, and ultimately I will be saved by His grace. Now that is such a... So I'm in recovery. So as a guy in recovery, I completely can look at that and say, yeah, that's a better way for me to look at that because as a guy in recovery, I if you tell me once saved, always saved, and then why don't I just go get high tomorrow? It's, it's just that is tends to be where my mind goes and so i've always sort of been but like i have to continue being saved every single day because my life depends on it because of my my addiction problems and my recovery but a lot of the church wants to basically say you know you're saved by your faith not works so it ends up being twisted to once saved always saved don't worry about it but i don't really see that in scripture, I see more. It's not like, you know, you can lose your salvation. It's like you're trying to work towards your salvation. But why wouldn't you want to work towards your salvation? You know, one of the words I keep coming back to, like in, in the later years of my life, I didn't think about this, you know, 10 years ago, is the word steward. Now, many people think like a stewardship. Now, it's going to hit us up for money. Like, that's not what stewardship is. There's a stewardship of your life, and your life consists of today. Like, I cannot be a steward of yesterday because that's gone. Right. And I can't be a steward of tomorrow until tomorrow gets here. So, like, going back to your your uh, example of, like, recovery, you know, in the, in the person who's trying to recover from an addiction, like, today's what matters. Right. You know, I mean, if, if five years ago was messed up, like, well, that's five years ago. Like, yeah. what am I doing about it today? That's good. I got to write that um, down. And, and so, like, I, you know, you, we look at the Christian life in the same way. You know, like let's say that I was a, a, a non-believer or just a, a, a you know, leading, leading a hedonistic lifestyle, like, you know, totally apart from Christ. Right. And then I, I, I find Christ and I'm 40 years old. You know, you don't say like, well, shame on you. You know, how come you didn't do that you know, until you were 40? You're like, well, you found him now. So, like, what are you going to do today? Right. And, and even though I've had Christ my whole life, I think. You know, I can't rest on like, well, you know, I, I was baptized, you know, 49 years ago. It's like, what am I doing with that today? Am I being a good steward of today? And and ultimately, Christ can look at what's the stewardship of your life? And your life consists of what you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I could have, the, and that's, the, that's like the beautiful thing about Christianity. You know, the, 
the thief on the cross, and I, a priest said one time, like, he was such a good thief, like, he stole paradise in the last minute of his life. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's good. But, I mean, like, the thief had lived, like, this horrible life. I mean, his entire society had rejected him to the point of, like, you're not worthy to live among us. I mean, he would have been the last candidate for any kind of salvation. And yet, on the cross, he looks at Jesus, and then that moment he's like, I know that you are greater than me, and I know that I am poles apart from you. And, you know, by your mercy, remember me in your kingdom. And he was a good steward of the last moment of his life. And, and Christ said, you are worthy of paradise. Now, we can't be like, all right, let me just do all this stuff wrong. And in the last minute, hopefully I'll, I'll be like the thief. I mean, we're not, that's not a license to do that. But we're saying that, like, <clears throat> this man was a good steward of the last moment of his life. And, and that was good enough for mm -hmm. Christ. So the last moment of my life is the one I'm in right now. <clears throat> Am I being a good steward of the moment I'm in? Am I being a good steward of today? If I am, then I'm working my way to, to paradise. I can't lean on what I did, you know, 20, 30, 50 years ago. Right. And that is this beautiful, you know, thing towards walking towards Christ. I think it should be something we should we should naturally want to do. You have this term theosis. Mm -hmm. What is theosis? Theosis is like deification. It's becoming more like God. Um, we are not God. We will never be God. Um, but to, to get our life so that we reflect God's glory all the time. Um, you know, the moon, the purpose of the moon that's around the earth is to reflect sunlight. I mean, when, when it's nighttime and the moon is shining on us, it's the light of the sun that's shining and the moon is reflecting that. If, if the sun and the moon are not in line, then the moon's just this dark, lifeless mass that doesn't do anything. And so, like, theosis really is to, like, shine God's light all the time. And, of course, none of us can do that because we all sin. At the moment we're sinning, we're not shining God's light. So theosis is like a journey. Can I shine God's light more brightly than I did yesterday or last year? You know, and do I love God to the point where I, like, I want to do that more? Um, and that's what that is. You know, in heaven, we're, we're going to shine God's light all the time. There's not going to be a, a time where we're, like, absent from God. I mean, that's the ultimate expression of, of being a Christian is that I'm going to be in the presence of God, shining his light all the time. And so our journey has to like kind of reflect a journey there. Like that's the ultimate goal. So if I live in the dark all the time, then it's like, well, how am I going to get to theosis? Cause I'm like living in the dark. I'm not even, I'm not doing that at all. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I was reading in the old Testament that like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, um, he was so bright that they said, you know, his face was so bright people couldn't look at him. They said, put a veil over your face because we can't look at you right. because he had seen God's glory and it totally changed him. Um, so we're in a process of like being God's glory and preparing ourselves to be in that glory forever. I mean, for eternity. Um, and, and people don't understand that. <clears throat> you know, I want to backtrack for a minute. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to give a wrong impression of our church that, I mean, I didn't talk about the Eucharist. I mean, I was going to go there. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're Eucharist centered. Yeah. I mean, it's not just like this extended prayer and some hymns, like the whole process leads us to an encounter with Christ <clears throat> where we believe that we take body, we take bread and wine, ordinary substances, and we pray over them. And we believe that the Holy spirit comes down on them and makes these ordinary things extraordinary. <clears throat> and then we ordinary people partake of these extraordinary things and then we're supposed to have a reaction to that, which is we're supposed to go be extraordinary. Like, you don't just say, like, you know, I just got touched by, I'm ordinary. I just got touched by extraordinary. I'm going to go be ordinary or even subordinary. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just got touched by extraordinary. It's got to, like, raise my game. Like, I got to go be extraordinary now. Right. Um, 
And doing this often reminds us that we can be extraordinary when we encounter Christ. And so we, we encounter him in the Eucharist, like we touch God. And this, you know, for us is like a foretaste of, of heaven. So like in the Bible, you know, Jesus speaks in parables many times. And it's like a life, it's like a, a story that we can kind of relate to with a, with a life lesson. And for some people would hear the parables and they just wouldn't understand them at all. And Jesus said, you know, like to the disciples, to you it's given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others, they see it in parables. So seeing they don't see and hearing they don't understand. So if a person like comes to our service and says like, what the heck is this? You know, a bunch of incantations and the guy with robes and the thing with bells on it and smoke, <laughs> you know, that's like, it remains like a parable. So like our service is like the ultimate parable because yeah. the people that understand what we're doing, I mean, really understand. And I'm still in the process of understanding, you know, if, if we understand what we're doing, it's like the kingdom of God opens the doors and, and it's present right now in, in our church in that moment. It's not just like incantations and petitions it's like the kingdom of god right here right now with christ in the center and me partaking of christ the way that i hope i'm going to do for eternity mm -hmm. um it's like kind of a, a practice for that and right. so you, you practice <clears throat> they say you play like how you practice so i mean if i want to go to the kingdom of god then i'm practicing that today next sunday every time i'm going to, to celebrate the liturgy that's beautiful. Now, just so anybody watching or listening doesn't know that when he says Eucharist, he's talking about what most Protestants would call communion. And what he's, in fact, saying is that in the Orthodox faith, they, they believe that is the flesh and blood of Jesus and that it is, in fact, his flesh, his blood, and they take it with the utmost respect. They treat it exactly like it is that to the point where... If the communion wine is spilled, they will cut the carpet out because that is the blood of Jesus and it is not to be trampled on. Absolutely. And, you know, like at the end of the liturgy, like whatever's left of the communion, the, the, the priest will <clears throat> consume that so that not a crumb of the body or a drop of the blood is left, you know, anywhere to be vacuumed or thrown away or trampled on, as you said. Yeah. Um, you know, and then also like in order to receive communion, we're we're preparing ourselves, I mean, with, with fasting, with prayer. Yeah. Um, you know, people don't take the decision, you know, like if, if you know, today is Thursday and we're going to go to church on Sunday. I mean, people have decided from now, like, I'm going to go to communion on Sunday. I'm preparing myself for that. Um, it's not like, uh, oh, here he comes with communion. Like, I'm going to go. Um, at least yeah. it's not supposed to be. We're supposed to be thinking and preparing um, constantly for this. Yeah, you have to use. So the Orthodox Church typically is thought of in, as in three legs, uh, fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. Yeah, yeah, actually, there's 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 four. There's fasting. There's well, there's fasting. There's praying. There's worship, and there's almsgiving. And and, par and part of prayer is the scripture reading. So we pray to God. We listen to the scriptures. We fast, which means we discipline ourselves. You fast a lot. We fast a lot. Yeah, I fast like a, a lot, a lot. And so, like, you have to fast the night before receiving the Eucharist. Yeah, we fast the morning of. The morning of that we're going to receive, we don't eat anything. So, like, I wake up on Sunday morning, I don't eat anything. And the first thing that's going to go into me is Christ. And that's, like, a sign of, like, not only, like, reverence and respect, but it's actually, like, kind of a cool thing. Like, when, when I turn the calendar over for my week, the first thing I'm going to eat every week is Christ. That's the first thing I'm going to do every week is worship. I'm not going to like turn the calendar over and say like, okay, I'm going to do this. And, and actually like the word breakfast comes from the, the term breaking the fast. It comes back from the early centuries of Christianity when people were receiving the Eucharist every day. Not only they would turn over the calendar of the week, they would turn over the calendar of the day. And they were like, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go have Christ and then I'm going to have breakfast. Um, <clears throat> we're not doing that every day, but we do it Sundays and on, on many other days. Wow. And you also make a really big deal out of um, confession. Mm -hmm. 
So confession process. I mean, you know, confession is not about like heaping up your sins. Like I've done all these things and the priest says, you know, you're bad or go do this, you know, to make up for it. Um, the church is in many ways like a spiritual hospital and everybody in the hospital is either, either they're hurting or they're healing. <laughs> one of the, one of the two, either you're sick or you're a healer. And so like, we're all sick because of our sins. So coming to the church is like going, like going to a hospital and <clears throat> you know, the people who go to the hospital, the, the thing that the doctor needs to hear most from the person who's in the hospital is that I'm sick. And I'm sick because I'm coughing, I'm sneezing, I have a fever, whatever. And the doctor says, here's a prescription, you know. But the first thing that you that the doctor says is, like, what, what's wrong? And so if you go and you say, like, well, nothing's wrong, you know. And the doctor's like, well, what can I do for you here? Um, so when people come to confession, they come in order to be healed spiritually from their sin and also to get some kind of prescription for, like, how can I go from from here? So the the, the priest, it's not about, like, you know, here's your sins. Okay, God bless you. Go. You know, when I'm hearing a confession, I'm I'm listening for a person to say like, you know, I, I need help. I want to come back. I want to come back. Um, let me back up a step. Like the story that best illustrates confession in the Bible is the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. The prodigal son goes and he wastes the inheritance of his father. And the inheritance is like the faith, the time, the the resources, all the things that we waste. And the key moment in that story is when the son comes to himself. He doesn't, the father doesn't come back and like compel him to come. The son comes to that conclusion all by himself. Like I'm not living right. And then he makes a plan to go back to the father. And that plan we call repentance. I mean, because confession is one thing to realize like I'm done wrong, but repentance is more important than confession. You can say like, I've done wrong. I'm going to keep doing wrong, <laughs> you know, but, but repentance is where you're like, I've done wrong and here's how I want to do right. Here's how I want to fix it. So the son goes back to the father. And if you read carefully in the Bible, um, the, the father sees the son at a distance. He, he runs out to him. And before the son can do anything, the father embraces him. Yeah. And then the father, and then it's like the son, like almost like pushes the father away and says like, wait, wait, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. And the, and the, and the father's like, oh, welcome. Let's have a feast for you. Um, and, and that's how I like approach confession. Like when I'm hearing confession is like the person walks through the door for, to, to come to confession. I have no idea what they're going to say, right. but instantly my heart leaps for joy. Like they're coming back. Right. You know? And so then they come and they're like, okay, I did, I did an ABC thing. Okay. Um, let's, let's talk about why let's talk about how we can avoid that. And then let, let's like celebrate, you know, like, yeah. thank God you came, right. you know, there's no like shame. Like, well, you came back and you had done all these bad things. Just like the father said, son, I'm not gonna let you have shame. We're gonna have a party for you. We're gonna put the ring back on your finger that, that says you belong to the family. We're going to kill the fatted Catholic, the best thing I have, you know, because I'm so glad that you're here. Yeah. And, and so people think of confession as like, uh, oh my gosh, I'd be like so embarrassed. Like the Bible says there's like joy in heaven when we repent. So, you know, how can there, if there's joy in heaven, how can there not be joy in the church? Right. Um, you know, and so then people are like, so father, like, do you keep score? Like, you know who did everything? And I'm like, I don't remember anything. Um, I had a, I had a talk with, um, with a priest. I had my first confession when I was 19. I wish I knew about this when I was like 13. Probably would have helped me a lot. But, um, <laughs> so I was not in a great place when I was 19. I went and had my first confession with this, with this wonderful priest who's now passed away. And, and he told me some things that were like life changing. In fact, that conversation, my, my life probably tilted on that conversation. It's probably among the most profound conversations I've ever had. And I went back to him years later and I said, you know, Father, um, I just want you to know that whatever was said that day, like changed the course of my life. And he goes, I don't remember. And I'm like, how can you not remember? Like that was like meant the world to me. 
you know right. and, and he said to me he goes seriously he goes the um the grace of the holy spirit that comes on you to wipe out your sins comes on me to to wipe out my memory of the conversation and it's i've i've lived that for the last 24 years you know people are like father you know this amazing thing was done in confession like i'm like i don't remember even coming to confession i'm like how do you not remember that and i'm like it's the same thing it's crazy that like the entire memory of the conversation is gone just like with your sins i'm not meant to to remember who said what mm-hmm. i'm just meant to to be like the loving father and like welcome you home that's beautiful um, so and we don't have confession like anonymously we don't sit like in a booth or anything it's like face to face because it's relational there's no relationship if if we don't know one another in fact during the pandemic a few years ago someone came to confession that was not from my church so i didn't know them and they came in and they were wearing a mask and i was wearing a mask and we we're sitting there talking and at the end of the confession i said um you know move across the church and take your mask off for a minute and i'll take mine off so we can see who we are because i don't want to walk down a street or you walk down a street and you're like i well, that's the person that prayed with me and I don't know them or I don't know you. Um, right. it's, it's all about a relationship. That's beautiful. And it's, you know, I've really been thinking a lot about this whole idea of the confession because I think um, for so long I've heard people in the Protestant church say, you know, we just don't think it's right that, you know, only the priest can hear the confession and, and that's just not biblical because, you know, we're all priests and all that. But it's once again, I think it's one of those things that we twist what it means because it fits our benefit. But what I've found is so we don't confess at all. And so at least when there's, you know, you know, in like Orthodox faith and, you know, and probably even in the Catholic faith in this instance, it's like, well, I'm supposed to go confess to this person. So I should confess. So I think there's a lot of Protestants that don't confess at all because of that. In the in the ancient again, we have a hard time with this context, the way we live in our in our country right now. But centuries ago, when when society was like an agrarian society, they didn't have cars. I mean, everybody lived kind of close, so you'd have like your little village, and you have your church, and you you didn't go to another village. You couldn't get in the car and drive thirty right. miles somewhere. Like people kind of hunkered down, and they didn't really go very far. And so, living in a in a kind of a closed community like this, um, the confession in the early church was actually public. So you would get to a point in the liturgy, we still have this line in the liturgy, and the priest says, let us love one another that with one mind we may confess. And, be, and, and that is a lead-in to confess our faith by saying the creed. But before we got there, there was like a pause in the service, and people went around, and they asked forgiveness for one another. They made their confessions like publicly. Like, I'm sorry, I spoke badly about you. Now, that's not really practical. So the priest not only represents Christ, but he also represents the community. Hmm. That confession was done in the context of community. And then, and the embrace of the community, you know, people would like, oh, okay, you did wrong. Okay, I did wrong to you. Okay, let's let's make up. Let's embrace one another. Um, and, and so the part of it is that the priest represents the community. Um, the confession was always done publicly. <clears throat> the second thing is that, and, you know, we have all these beautiful traditions, and people are like, where do you get these things from? And I'm like, they all come from Scripture. They may be fleshed out in, in a certain way that becomes tradition, but like the, the idea of confession actually comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, where Jesus says to his disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. <clears throat> and so the idea that the priest, the, the remember the bishop goes back to the apostles, so the idea that the apostles and the bishops can loosen and retain sins and then the bishop ordains the priest and, and gives him the same responsibility and same privilege, I guess. Um, that's scriptural. 
So the fact that we now have these prayers and we sit in front of an icon of Christ and it's done the same way the world over, even though that's not in the Bible, mm -hmm. the, the, the genesis of this whole idea of confession is in the Bible. <clears throat> and then in the Orthodox Church, we, we, we codify like the way this is going to be done. I mean, nowhere in the Bible does it say how to do the Eucharist other than there's bread and wine and people around a table. You know, it doesn't say do it at 10 in the morning. doesn't say have pews yeah. or vestments or whatever. So, you know, over time, this service has evolved to what it is, just like confession has evolved to what it is, but it's done the same way the world over in orthodoxy. So, you know, the beautiful thing about confession is that it gives us the, the right, the privilege, the joy to be loosed of our sins. So, like, let's say that, you know, a person's in recovery, and so they carry this burden of, of all the years that they were addicted and doing the bad things associated. So they're living in the present. They're like, okay, I'm sober. I, I, feel, I feel good, and I'm focusing on today mm -hmm. that I'm going to be sober. But then what about the weight of what I did? Like, I'm still carrying that weight around. So even though I have sort of a joy of being sober, I've still got, like, sort of weight of, like, guilt that I'm carrying around. So, like, confession helps to, like, get rid of that. Yeah. Because it's like the, the, the sin, like when you finish confession, the prayer that the priest offers says, have no further anxiety about the things you've confessed. All right. So going to, since, since you, uh, you know, many people that are listening to this are in recovery, <coughs> confession is like getting rid of all the past bad. It doesn't mean that at present you don't have to work. I mean, you're gonna have to work the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm gonna have to work. To, I'm, you know, I'm addicted to you know, alcohol or drugs, but I'm addicted to, you know, pride and ego and other things. And I got to work on my addictions like every day. <clears throat> I'm addicted to sinning. I mean, gosh, we do that every day. Yeah, Everybody right. does. All right. So that's a continuous thing. And there's no way that, you know, you have a confession and that's like, okay, I'm set for the rest of my life. Confession like helps kind of repair the past and also helps us to recommit to the, the present and the future. Like, right. so I did these bad things and I want to be loose of the pain and the guilt and shame. And I'm going to repent. I'm going to work on today, and I've got a plan for tomorrow. And then it's like, okay, here's your gift of, like, the, all the past guilt gone. Um, and then, you know, if you fall down again, which, again, we all are going to in certain ways, you know, you come back. You're like, okay, I fell down again. Um, now i gotta, I got to repent of that. Here's my plan for today. Here's my plan for tomorrow. And then it's like, all right, let me, let me f offer a prayer to loosen the pain of the past. You know, God does not want us to live in shame. Right. You know, Adam and Eve walked intimately with God in the Garden of Eden. You know, and we don't, we forget like that whole picture. Like that's our future. That's what he wants for us. He wants us to walk hand in hand with him in the Garden of Heaven. Um, and, and our shame clouds our view of that because it's like, I'm so ashamed of who I am and what I've done. There's no way I could walk in the garden with God. There's no way. Right. So, I mean, I remember years ago when I moved south, um, there was a couple year period where I hadn't gone to confession because I was going with someone up north where I lived and then I came south and I hadn't gone and I, I finally found someone that I felt comfortable going to. And I remember the confession and I, I was probably like, I don't know, my early 30s. And I thought to myself, like, God, I remember exactly, I remember walking outside, it was at a camp where I was walking by myself under the stars. And I said, God, you know, I don't want to die anytime soon. However, if you think if, if my time is you know, now, like just take me now because I feel so good. I feel like totally loose of all this shame. And I feel like if you took me right now, that maybe I'd have a chance to walk with you in that garden. Yeah. You know, whereas yeah. like, like right now, this minute, I'm like, please don't come in here right now. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I got to repent. Like I'm not ready right now, but it, it, it opens the door that a person can actually feel at the moment that they're, they're done. 
like, wow, I actually can see myself doing that. And I'm not full of like guilt and shame anymore. Wow. That's how it should be. That's beautiful. One last question, but it's a big one. Okay. All right. So what does the Orthodox Church believe happened on the crucifixion? So lots of, um, you know, this has been a discussion between some friends of mine and, you know, there's penal substitutionary atonement theory and there's all these different theories. Like what is the Orthodox Church? And because I've looked up and tried to get my mind around what they believe. Um, and I really couldn't get a clear picture. I got different ideas from different people, but what is it that they believe? I mean, we believe that Jesus died on the cross. Like he died a physical death. All the things that people do when they're alive that make them alive versus when they're not alive, Jesus expired on the Mm -hmm. cross. Um, and we believe that, that three days later, and that's Jewish days, they count Friday, and then when the sun went down on Friday, it was Saturday. And when the sun went down on Saturday, it was Sunday. So even though it's like 36 hours, mm-hmm. um, we, we call it three days. Again, according to the Judeo-Byzantine way of counting. <clears throat> so we believe that that after he died on the cross, he was raised from the dead. Um, we know that, that God has the power over life and death because we saw people in Jesus' life that were dead come back to life. I mean the son of the widow of Nain and mm-hmm. the, his friend Lazarus. I mean, we know that it, it, it was possible. He showed that it was possible that a dead person could come back to life. And so he was a dead person who came back to life. I mean, that's what we believe. Now, why is this even necessary? Um, you know, someone asked me this, and again, I'm not a theologian. I'm just, I'm a, I put things in practical terms. Um, you know, there's probably some Orthodox scholar that would probably look at me and be like, are you serious? Like you're talking about, <laughs> you know, algebra equations and salvation. So I came up with this thing years ago because someone asked me like, father, put me in this, put this in terms that I can understand. So I remember I wrote on a big poster board, uh, an algebra equation. I wrote two X plus two equals six and X equals two. And I said, you arrive at that by minusing two from both sides, divided by two on both sides. And now you have your answer and whatever you have to do to one side, you have to do to the other side. So when God created us, he made us like him. I mean, now we are, you can't put God equals man because that's not correct. So you put, they say put God and then like little, little squiggly line and man, like we are like, we are meant to be like God. We're meant to live forever like God. And we are meant to, and, and in order to live with God, we have to choose God. So when the fall happened, um, it was because mankind chose not to go with God. They chose to go away from God. And the consequences of the fall were things like, you know, hard work and being tired and being sick and struggling. And ultimately all this stuff led to our death. So now you have all this stuff on man's side of the equation and none of the stuff on God's side of the equation. So God says in my love for mankind, I don't want you to be like that. I want to restore the image that you had here when, when we were like on the same plane. So how can we do that? We have to do what happened on our side of the equation to his side of the equation. So, he incarnates his son, the word of God, Jesus Christ, it, who is part of the Holy Trinity from the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. He comes down to the earth like us. like So he comes as a baby, and he, he has a hometown, and he has a childhood. <clears throat> and he doesn't just appear at 30 years old, because if someone just appears at 30 years old, the first thing you ask him is, like, well, where are you from? Right. I mean, when you meet someone for the first time, it's like, where are you from? So Jesus had to come like us and he had to have a, a, a hometown and a childhood so when people met him he could say like this is where i come from and then you know he walked the earth and he taught us how to live 
and he taught us about a greater kingdom. But he also experienced the things that we experience. Like we know that he got tired because um, he sat down at the at the well in Samaria and said, "I'm I'm I'm tired. I need water to drink. I'm thirsty." You know, we know that he he had to lay down and sleep, and we sleep because we get tired. We know that he got sad because when his friend Lazarus died, he was crying. Mm -hmm. So we know, and we know he got upset when they went to the temple and like they were doing dumb things in there. So he did all the things that we did. And then he died. He died like we die. And at the moment that he died, we read in the Bible, he said, it is finished, which in Greek is the word tetelesta, one word. And tetelesta doesn't mean finished in the sense of being like completed, like done over. It means the sense of like balanced, like the work that I came to do to sort of balance this equation, it's done. Now we're on the same plane. You're going to die. I died. All right. And so then what happens? He's buried. He rises from the dead. He ascends to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the father. And this is the work that's left to be done on our side of the equation. Like we're going to die. And it's just a question of how we're going to die. Are we going to die full of ourselves? Are we going to die full of pride? Or are we going to die like he did and say, like, into your hands I commit my spirit? So when we die full of faith and we've got a life that backs up that faith, we're going to die like the thief did. Remember me in your kingdom and my life is going to reflect that. Then we're going to be buried. We believe that we're going to be resurrected, our soul, our body, and we're going to ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father. And so that's what, that's what remains for us. Um, and so that's what we believe as as Orthodox Christians. So it's a, he just experienced everything, and that, see, I had somebody up in when I first came in contact with Orthodox faith up in Pittsburgh explained it to me, and they explained it. Now I'm starting to see the similarities. She used the word passions, and it's like we had passions, and there's the godly ones, and she did a beautiful job of explaining it, but I couldn't explain it to anybody else. I tried, but that makes sense. So it's like he experienced all these things, and if we're like God, then we experience the next two, which we die and then resurrect, where um, so many people of faith believe that he had to pay for our sins and be beaten and, and the whole crucifixion, Ordeal. I mean, he had to die for our sins. But, and, and the but way it wasn't it, like the payment, like he had to be. I mean, we don't talk about, we don't focus like on the brutality of the crucifixion. Right. I mean, even our icons of the crucifixion show Jesus nailed to the cross, but they don't show him bleeding from every part of his body. It was not that. It was that, um, you know, salvation came. There's so much symbolism. Oh, my gosh. Right. Um, you know, our, our fall came because of a tree. I mean, we partook of the forbidden tree. You know, and our salvation comes through a tree. Jesus was nailed to the tree. Um, we, the cross, it just itself, I mean, was a sign of humiliation. Now it's a sign of triumph. But the, the two bars of the cross represent our personal relationship with Christ and our relationship with each other. And they also represent, like, the two great commandments, which are love God, love your neighbor. Um, the, the sideways in, uh, bar of the cross is like an invitation to God. Uh, from God. Th- this is for everybody. Salvation is for everybody. Even like the Lord with his arms outstretched on the cross. I mean, this is the, this is the, the sign we give each other when we want to give each other a hug, you know? I mean, we did. And that was like Christ's like hug for humanity. Like, I want all of you. I want all of you. You know, people say like, are you ever, you ever position your body like Christ? Or like everyone, every time you go to embrace somebody, we're like, let's embrace, you know? And so that was like his embrace for the whole world. He did this, um, to balance the equation and, and, and he had to do that. He had to show that. Show he had to show that for us, um, so that we the, the equation can be balanced, and then he can complete the thing by rising from the dead and going back to the Father. That's beautiful. Did he go into hell? Yes. Yes. Because everybody 
prior to this time they went to hell? And that's that's a thank you for asking that question. Yeah. Um, I hope you can throw a graphic of our icon of the resurrection up. Yeah. Because our icon of the resurrection does not show Jesus coming out of the tomb like with a banner, like you know, I conquered death. Um, that is not what the resurrection is. He went down into Hades and he rescued everyone that had fallen through death. And so our icon of the resurrection shows Adam and Eve. It shows John the Baptist and Moses and all the, the righteous people who came before Christ. And he shows it shows him going down there and rescuing them. Like we're all gonna fall through death. We're all gonna we're all gonna pass from this life. And that's a you know, a horrible, sad thing, you know, for th- those who were left behind. But it's like in the moment that we're dying, he's gonna go and, and rescue us. And the and the cool thing, again, I can I hope you can show this graphic. Yeah, we can. Um it shows Christ grabbing Adam by the wrist, which is super important. Like when you shake hands, there's a there's a it denotes like equality. Like I'm gonna meet you halfway. When you grab someone by the wrist, like pull them, it means that you're doing more than fifty percent of the work. Yeah. You know, so it's like our job is to like have faith or like reach to Christ, and then Christ like grabs us by the wrist and says like, "Come on, you know, I'm I'm doing yeah. even more than like half. We don't even have to meet him halfway. Yeah. We got to meet him part of the way." And so like I love that picture and like the most joyful hymn, and this is going to sound crazy, um, the most joyful hymn of the Orthodox year, if you ask every Orthodox Christian, knows the hymn, Christ is Risen. And it's like, Christ is risen from the dead by death, trampling down death, and those in the tombs, he's bestowing life. And people are like, wow, how can that be joyful? You got like death, death, tombs, <laughs> you know? And it's like, because that's what it's all about. Yeah. By bestowing life to those in the tombs, like there's no way around it. We're all going to lay in the tomb no matter what. No matter the righteous guy, the saintly guy, the, the awful guy, the, we're all going to lay in the tomb. That's the common destiny for everybody. And because of his resurrection, he bestows life to those in the tombs. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's what it's all about. And it's all that's like beautiful. I know I'm going to die at some point, and, and how am I going to be at that? And then like working backwards from that, like how do I want to be at that point? I want to be like ready to go walk in the garden with God. So now I got to walk backwards. I don't know if that's a day from now or a month from now or 50 years from now for me. But at some point I'm going to be there. But like walking backwards to today, like I want to be living right today because if, if, if the call is tomorrow, like come walk in the garden or not, you know, like I want to be ready. Yeah. I want to be ready for that. Yeah. So that, that really matters what I'm doing today. And it matters more what I'm doing today than what I did yesterday. Yesterday could have been a complete failure. And again, for the people that are in recovery, I mean, it's today that matters. Uh, is what, what am I doing with today? Because yeah. today is the day I have. Like we read in the Psalms, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. And let's like think about him in it. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Think about today. Don't worry about yesterday. Jesus says, just think about today. Don't worry about yesterday or tomorrow because that's just, you know, basically you can't add an hour to your day by worrying. No, I mean, in Matthew 6, it's like sufficient for today is its own problems. Yep. So, like, let's get through today. You know, and the thing is, like, you know, how was Jesus like us? I mean, you, people that are in recovery, you got to make a choice today to be sober. Like, they don't say, like, are you going to be sober the rest of your life? Like, that's too long. It's too like, long. I'm going to be, I'm going to be sober, like, today. And so, and you got to make that choice every single day. So Jesus was faced with a choice of temptation every day, just like we were, just like we are. And, and he made the right choice every time out, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean like he had an easy life and he wasn't tempted to like go. He was tempted the same way we're tempted. Right. He just made that choice the right way every single time out. We're not going to, because we're not him. 
And so, you know, the church is there to, like, encourage us. Um, the, con- you know, confession's there to help repair us and restore us. And then we've got to be good stewards of today and make those right yeah. choices so that we can be like him and we can end up with him. That's beautiful. So I think um, we probably should explain an icon to people because you've mentioned sure. it multiple times. And people are like, icon? What? Uh, yeah, say, so Tom Brady? It's a, yeah, no. right. <laughs> you know, an icon, that's really, that's an awesome question. Um, an icon, the word icona means image, image. So um, the icons for us, we don't, you know, people are like, like, are you violating the second commandment? You have all these icons here and you like, you, you venerate them, you you make your cross and you kiss the icon, you know, that's not, is that idol worship? It's like we, we venerate what it represents. So, you know, we have an image of Christ and Christ looks like a uh, Middle Eastern man in his early thirties. He's got brown hair and dark, darker pigment skin, the way that people look like in the Middle East today. You know, he's not blonde hair and blue eyed. That's not what he would have looked like. (laughs) Um, and then we have these events in the life of, of Jesus, like the crucifixion and the resurrection, to kind of help us um, understand what happened. And then, like, in the terms of, like, the saints, like, what these people would have looked like. So, like, for anyone who's ever had a kid and you teach your kid how to read, before they learn how to read, they, they know pictures. Like, this is a red. This is a dog. This is before they, before they read the word dog, they see an image of a dog. Like, that's a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, be, uh, before 300 years ago, no one was reading, no one had books. So people learn through pictures. So if you want to understand like why, what, why is the resurrection so important? It's not, it's not important that one man cheated death. I mean, who cares? I mean, one guy cheated death, good for him. It's, he gives life to all those in the tombs. So we see Christ going down there again, like I said, with the wrist, you know, that tells us like how much of this do, is on us. Um, it, it, you see righteous people like John the Baptist and it's like, gosh, even he died and he needed to be resurrected. Like we need, all of us need that. Um, so the icons, they, they kind of tell stories and they explain the things and they give us images, windows, um, into what these people and these events would have looked like. The other thing is that when we read in Genesis that we are creating the image and likeness of God, obviously the, the original translation is in Hebrew and Aramaic, but the Septuagint Greek translation of that says we were made in the image and likeness of God. We were made as an icona of God. We were made as an icon of Christ. So if you stand in front of an icon of Christ and you really stand there with like an open mind and an open heart, you are not going to stand there and feel negative. There's no way they're going to stand like in the presence of God and be like, hey, you know, screw you. Or, you know, I'm not going to deface that. I'm going to feel either I'm going to feel loved or I might feel inadequate, like how am I, how am I standing here? So the idea, if we're the, is that ultimately I see you as an icon of Jesus, and I have the same feelings for you that I have standing in front of the icon of Jesus. I don't want to say anything negative to you. I want to honor you. Maybe I even feel inadequate, unworthy to be with you, but I feel like how he, I feel his love. That's how you should feel in my presence, that you should feel my love and not my judgment or my anger or anything else. Like, I'm supposed to be that icon for you. I'm supposed to see you mm. as that icon. Um, and so the icons are like important because they remind us that we're icons and we're supposed to act like that. Wow. That's powerful. And also, they tell, and also, like, on a practical level, they tell stories. You know, people, like, you look at an icon of Christmas, and, you know, if you didn't know the Christmas story, you, like, you study the icon, and it's like, in, in you know, the, the shepherds were there, the magi were there. 
you know, the animals were there, or the star was there. Like, what's the point of all that? It's because, like, like it's for everybody. Yeah. You know, the rich, the poor, the animals, the stars, the earth itself. I mean, everyone came to worship the creator. It was not about Jesus being born in a barn. It was about the creator coming to be part of the creation. All creation showed up to, like, worship the creator. Wow. Um, you know, and we depict Christ's incarnation in a cave, not in a, in a, in a barn, because the, the barn would have been built by human hands. And we know historically the animals were kept in caves anyway. But, you know, the cave is something that would have been made by the hand of God. So when they say there was, like, no room in the inn, there was really no room in anything made by human hands that could contain the creator of the human hands. He had to come in a place that he created, not that we created. Hmm. So, again, the cave is important uh, for that. The cave also uh, foreshadows the tomb of Christ. He was going to be laid in the, in the earth. And also in the, in the cave, in the back of the cave, it's black. And black is the, the color for infinity. So, like, you know, the, the expanse of heaven is infinite. So, like, you don't see, like, a, it's like an uncontained space. Um, it's infinite. It doesn't have an ending. Like, God doesn't have an ending or beginning. Right. Wow. That so, is so there's, awesome. like, there's really cool things that, that yeah. come in our iconography. I love it. I, um, I've really fallen in love with the church. I think it's a beautiful thing. And I'm hoping that, you know, others at least experience it. It's not about becoming orthodox or whatever it's about understanding that we all love jesus and we should respect and get to know one another on a deeper level because we can't be icons of christ if there's division between all of us how could if if people you know really enjoyed what you had to say today and want to come experience your church how how can they do that um anyone's welcome one thing i want to say and it just crossed my mind in the last minute is that you know, we're called a Greek Orthodox I, Church. I meant to mention and, this. And, and people are like, well, I'm not Greek. I can never go there. Um, you know, in, in Orthodox countries like Greece today, they don't call themselves Greek Orthodox. They're all Greek. That's, they know what they are. <laughs> so, you know, Greece, Romania, Albania, these are, these are countries that are Orthodox. When, I mean, that's the religion. Everybody, everybody that's Christian is that. It's in Greece, in fact, it's like the state religion. Um, the priests are like civil servants. So when Orthodoxy comes into a country that is not Orthodox, in, in ecclesiastical terms, we call it the diaspora, the non-Orthodox country, the ethnic group that brings it here puts their name on the sign. So like a bunch of Greeks 60 years ago founded St. John's, and so it's the Greek Orthodox Church. There is a, a uh, Serbian church in Pinellas County. Um, the faith is identical. I mean, the services are identical, the theology is identical. It, to a greater or lesser extent, there's there are cultural vestiges, and so there are certain there are certain churches that where people are, you know, immigrants from Greece, and they'll they'll still do the, still do a lot of the service in Greek. You know, our church has a little bit of Greek. Um, you know, over time, we've become more and more English. As we're second, third, fourth generation um, Greek Americans, or or you know, like in my case, I'm married to someone who is 100% Japanese. My wife is a convert to the faith. Um, you know, our son, my mother was a convert to the faith. So um, I'm only, I'm half Greek. My son is a quarter Greek. Um, so th this is for everybody. Anybody's welcome. Um, you know, the only sort of caveat is that there is, there is some Greek in there. Um, but we don't look at like, you know, if you're not Greek, so you're like less than, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. um, you know, anyone is welcome to come to our church. We're at 2418 Swan Avenue um, in Hyde Park. We have services every Sunday at 10 o'clock. Um, th there's a couple things to keep in mind if you come visit a church. Um, one is that if you come, your first impression is probably going to be like confusion. <laughs> like, wow, this is so different. Um, so I tell people, like, don't judge us on first look. Like, come like five or six times and see like a pattern there or sit down with me or one of my assistants and like we'll talk to you about it. Um, but if you come one time, you're like, ooh, it's so different. I don't know if I can do this. Um, you got to come a couple times before you 
Yeah. Sort of, sort of make up your mind that this is for you. Um, the second thing, and this is kind of sad. I mean, it's reality, but it's kind of a sad. Um, we don't practice open communion. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Like, you have to be orthodox in order to receive communion. And that is because um, the communion is, like, not the means to a union. It's th- it is the union. So if someone says, like, you know, I'm, I'm you know, Methodist or whatever, and I want to come to communion on Sunday in your church, but the next Sunday I'm going to go back to the Methodist church. It's like, well, then what did we do on Sunday? We created kind of like a false union, you know, because we still have like these divisions. So when a person says like, I confess like this creed, I understand this faith. I want to belong. I want to belong here. And I don't want to belong anywhere else. And it's like, well, now you can come and receive communion because like you belong. Remember I said like Orthodox was about belonging. So you, if a person who's Orthodox can, can go to communion in any Orthodox church, um, but we're, we are not allowed to go to other to commune other churches. I cannot go receive communion in a Catholic church uh, or a Protestant church. And likewise, they don't come to us because it's about like who do mm-hmm. we belong to. Um, and the, and this is a sad thing. I mean, we, we pray at every service, you know, having prayed for the unity of the faith. I mean, we, we pray for a day where that division is not there. But while it is there, that, and again, that's our practice. And again, some people are, you know, they that, that's kind of negative and I hate <laughs> and. uh a negative note there, um, right. but it's it's um, it's not for everybody. Um, it's definitely an investment of of time and energy. It takes some time to learn, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing it. But there's just so much depth there. There's so much depth there, and and I just I feel comfortable because I can go anywhere in the world to an Orthodox church and I'm going to feel at home, and I'm going to know what's going to happen. I'm going to know what they believe, and and things like. I can't imagine a, a church that didn't have confession. I can't imagine not having access to the spiritual hospital or the ability to like dump off all my right. guilt. And like, there's just so much there that I'd love. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful thing. And I really hope that, you know, it opens up people's minds hearing you speak. I think you're an amazing guy. And I've, I took the Orthodox 101 class for a month and I really enjoyed it. And um, I find it to be, you know, really inspiring, especially when you know the lineage of it all. And so, Thank you for coming in and talking to us. And we're going to have you back because you're writing a book or wrote the book. Book's ready. And uh, from one author to a fellow author, we're going to get you back here to talk about it when it's time. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me, George. I really yeah, appreciate that. This God is bless awesome. You. God bless the, the work that you're doing here. Thank you so much. It's uh, great to be uh, getting to know you more, and I'm sure we'll do more work together in the future. Absolutely. God bless you, and God bless the people who are watching this. Um, I hope, by God's grace, that, that this did something um, positive for your spirit today. And yeah. may God bless and keep you. And as they said in the Old Testament, may, may the light of his countenance shine on you, and may you have peace. God bless you. Amen. Thank you.